Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Lucy Fulford about her just published book titled The Exiled, Empire Immigration and the Ugandan Asian Exodus, which does really a whole bunch of things. It examines uh, the experience, the impact, the reasons why, um, that Idi Amin of Uganda made the shocking announcement in August of 1972 to expel the South Asian population from the country. Um, This book looks at why that happened, um, what happened next from the perspective of first-hand accounts, um, from, well, really a whole bunch of different perspectives that I'll let Lucy tell us all about um, to help us understand what happened and why and what some of the impacts were immediately and in the longer term as well. So Lucy, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us about your book. Thank you so much for having me here. Really appreciate it. Before we get into the book itself, though, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So yeah, my name's Lucy Fulford. I'm a journalist and filmmaker and author of The Exiled. Uh, I mostly cover migration, conflict, and decolonization in my work. And I'm really interested in the legacy of things. So maybe after a story moves out of the daily news agenda or the sort of subjects which sit around um, news stories. And this book project is something I've been working on for several years, but really this story has been a part of my life all my life because it's my family history as well. So I do have that really personal link to it. My mother's side of the family were exiled from Uganda in 72. And so I've known about this to a certain extent since I was young, but um, that has grown obviously as I've sort of tackled it more academically, um, moving from sort of snatches of stories to, to really understanding those bigger sort of geopolitical and colonial forces behind it. Um, and as we approached the 50th anniversary last year of the expulsion, I had sort of started thinking about ways to to do some work around this and that developed into into this book project and I was really inspired to do that because I wanted to bring this history to a wider audience whilst it's something I've always known it's not something many people know and it's a history that's been kind of almost forgotten and or ignored and you know throughout my schooling for example my peers never knew anything about it I've been telling people about I mean my whole life so um yeah, I kind of wanted to bring this this really important part of British history as well as sort of African and Indian history to to a wider audience. And I think like it's something that has been tackled academically increasingly within academic settings, 
but I hadn't sort of seen this nonfiction for, for a general reader. Um, and that's sort of what I wanted to do and talk about this history, but also move it beyond 1972 um, to, yeah, what happened next. I think you've already raised in that answer kind of a lot of what allows the book to be accessible, that there is the family connection, there is the first person one, and there's also the hang on, how does this fit into empire? Um, how does this fit into what's happening with decolonization in Africa during this period? Um, so those are going to be a whole bunch of the things that I'm now going to ask you more questions about. Um, one thing kind of I think is an important foundation and I don't think of this question really as a sort of precursor before we get to the good stuff, right? I think this is actually part of what you were talking about, the sort of hiddenness of this history. Even just the terminology is tricky. Um, in the book, you use Ugandan Asian to describe this population, but that's not necessarily an easy decision or kind of there isn't really a good answer, I suppose. So could you tell us a bit about how you thought your way through these options and came to this decision? Hmm. So yeah, I really gave quite a lot of thought to terminology. You know, language is so important, especially when we're talking about uh, topics that touch on all of these kind of things, race, migration, empire, um, things that come from an imperial framework might be in fact really loaded terms. So I wanted to really analyze that. Um, but yeah, I did decide to use the term Ugandan Asian in the book and it's in the subtitle of the book as well, but it's in no way a perfect term. And um that's really because it contains the word Asian, which is something that I have always felt a little bit uncomfortable around as a, a primary descriptor for the Indian populations in Uganda. Because I, I firstly never described myself as Asian, which is sort of an initial barrier. Although many people I know or have interviewed would really comfortably do so. So that's definitely a personal preference. But for me, the greater issue is one of geography. Asia is a vast area. Um, full of cultural diversity and I think it's just such a broad term to speak about one population within that that continent and so using that on its own definitely didn't sit well with me in this sort of current day especially because it could it could relate to just so many different people with so many applications um but then you might say well why don't we call this population Indian if, if that's really where people had come from but again it's, it's just not that simple because of another colonial legacy you know in in 1947 there had been partition in India and so what you have is generations of people who had gone to East Africa prior to that they had come from India but if they were to return they would now maybe be returning to Pakistan or later Bangladesh so it's actually after partition that people start referring to the Indian population in East Africa as Asian which is all to say that I decided to try and be a bit specific when I could I've used sort of South Asian East African Asian or Ugandan Asian, because that just really is a term that has come to be associated with this history. And I wanted to um, keep that kind of link and point of recognition, um, even if it's you know, a little bit complex. No, we, we like complexity. History is nuance, right? It's never one thing or the other. So thank you for taking us through that. Um, on a similar vein, I suppose, in this case, perhaps a little bit more of the kind of myth busting. Um, in a lot of popular press at the time, and I think very much since, given how little this is discussed, it tends to be sort of flattened out in a lot of ways. Um, to what extent were the thousands who were forced to leave Uganda as a result of this edict actually literally refugees? 
yeah, I like myth busting. I think that's that's a great word for it. Um, yeah, so I mean, it expels the entire South Asian population, and that is tens of thousands. Numbers vary. We think of between fifty to eighty thousand is commonly um, what was referred to, and people often speak about this as a movement of refugees, and it's something we do need to be a little bit careful because the vast majority of the exiled actually weren't refugees at all, even if they self-identify as as refugees. So um, South Asians had come to East Africa under the British Empire, and that was then the British protectorate of Uganda. And as a result of that, many of those people had some form of British citizenship. This, again, is hugely complex. It's a system with all manner of different levels of citizenship. But essentially, the majority of those expelled in 72 would have historically had a right to migrate on to Britain. So there's a smaller amount of people who took on Ugandan citizenship, really sort of for business advantageous reasons or to um, try and integrate. And often you had sort of a mixture of citizenship within a family. You might have uh, the head of the household taking on Ugandan and then the rest of them hedging their bets by maintaining their British passports. Um, And then obviously when the Ugandan government expels this population, their their citizenship is null and void. You know, you can't maintain a, a passport for a country that's that's throwing you out essentially. So that paperwork becomes meaningless. And those are the true stateless people who end up being assisted by the UN. So that's who we would refer to as refugees, but it's m- much, much smaller part of this wider population. And yeah, uh, what's interesting about it is that um of course we can say you weren't legally a refugee, but you might very much have felt like one. I mean the the experience of the expulsion involves being forced from your home. It's a forced migration. You're arriving at a communal camp, which is very much like a refugee camp. And what also happened is that the British government actually sort of started framing this a bit like a refugee crisis. This happened kind of almost immediately and really has continued in, in the way we talk about the Ugandan Asian exodus since. And it's part of a wider move to kind of gain acceptance in Britain for why number of people are coming here and why money will be spent on them. But it's also as a part of like this appeal that goes out globally to sort of say, hey, this isn't just a legacy of empire that we have to process. Um, This is a refugee crisis and it's a global issue. So yeah, sort of referring to this population as refugees is really politicized kind of back in the 70s and through to today. And that's helpful for, I think, some of the questions people might have listening to this of like, wait, why didn't I know this, right? And understanding kind of how much these terms would have been used for different purposes and kind of maybe talked over each other and grouped up with other things um, starts to help answer at least a little bit of that question. Um, The other aspect, of course, is that kind of this whole history, right? And in some ways, 1972 is, I guess, like the middle of your book in some ways, right? It's you talk about what happens before and what happens after. So 72 is not the end and it's not the beginning either. So we're not going to start with 1972. Um, Can you tell us a bit about how the South Asian Indian populations initially came to work and live in Uganda in the first place? Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think there has been, when this history is talked about, like a bit of a focus just on that expulsion of itself, which is natural. It's it's the main event. It's the kind of the 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 part that draws attention. But um, yeah, there's a there's a before and after. So yeah, the first part of my book I called Empire, and yeah, that's that's really the roots of 
South Asian migration to East Africa. So there's a there's a wide range of migratory journeys there. Um, and some of them came before before the British Empire. So that was traders sailing by small ship to sort of Zanzibar or along the Kenyan coast. But most of those didn't settle permanently, although some people did. And yeah, the, there's evidence of trainers coming along these this coastline back to the 7th century BC and um, I think Indian settlements in, in Mozambique in the 12th century. So it's a long history of, of movement, but really takes off with imperialism in East Africa because the British, through a system of divide and rule and also maybe just out-and-out racism, don't entrust some projects like the building of railways to, to local populations. And they would rather bring labor from India for that purpose. So uh, around 40,000 Indians came to construct the East African railways in Kenya and Uganda. And after the abolition of slavery, there was this system of indentured labor. So, you know, people were coming under work terms, but, you know, kind of restricted in their movements as well. And um, what's particularly interesting is that European migration to East Africa was not really taking off in the way that people might have hoped. And... In order to settle, they kind of started thinking about uh, Indian populations as being part of that development program. And um, one colonial and admi- one colonial administrator actually said East Africa should become the America of the Hindu. So, um, yeah, it's all very connected to to what the British were doing in this part of the world. And although only a small proportion of those railway workers actually settled permanently they sort of sowed the seeds for East Africa as a, as a place you could go and people sort of seeing it as as a place of promise almost and um, that kind of America dream vision, a gold rush, and people were going to, to have a chance at a new life. So um, there's, there's all of that. And then through to really the more direct recruitment. So my own family's experience is that much later in the 1950s, a British recruiter shows up in South India hiring people to work for the colonial administration and he's interviewing people and in their case hires two newly qualified, newly married teachers uh, to to come and have jobs in Kampala. That's a really helpful um, explanation of kind of why people would go for both reasons, right? Why Uganda would want people to come from South Asia and why people would choose to go um, for various reasons as well, which, and I think it's helpful to kind of put it in that phrasing um, of wanting a better life and the motivations for people to go. Because often I think we think of this as almost moving pieces on a chessboard. Um, and it's so much more I think relatable than that, you know, someone's just come out of teacher college and someone turns up with a good job offer. It's like, oh, actually, a load of us can know what that's like and you might consider moving somewhere that previously you hadn't thought of, right? So framing it in those terms um, makes a lot of sense. And especially this idea of the kind of American dreamness, right? Go and have a better life, be able to accomplish more. I understood from the book that that was especially towards the later stage of this, especially possible because of the place that South Asians had within the colonial Ugandan hierarchy. Can you tell us about how that worked? Mm. Yeah, so um, definitely there was, there was it, people were taking leaps into the unknown, you know, moving, moving across the world like this. And they were hearing that they could have a good life and in many ways they could. And that was sort of because of the social setup. So what you had is a hierarchical system 
And if you sort of think of it as a triangle, then you have the smallest third at the top, which is the British or white settlers, then South Asians below that, and then the who are kind of in a middle management or business role. And then below that, you have the larger third, which is the Ugandan population. So this is very clearly a hierarchy based on race. It's also class as well, intersects with this, but it's... Um, it's a racial hierarchy and South Asians are, yeah, they're below the British, but they're not at the bottom in this system. So there's there's some advantages that clearly come with that. And the, the sort of this structure, it's almost theoretical when we think of it as a triangle, but it's actually physically laid out on the landscapes of Kampala. So the, the famously known as the city of seven hills, there's, you know, these surrounded by sloping landscapes and uh, yeah, it's white people who live at the very top in the sort of prized positions. South Asians, the, the more well-off ones, are sort of lower down the hills and then down in the, the flatlands as well. And then the Ugandans are living further out. So it's kind of not subtle, this hierarchy, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Um, and yeah, this is this is a system where South Asians are encouraged to be the business people and and you can make money doing that. And many turned out to earn really good livings and be quite financially successful. And so, yeah, this is definitely going backwards and forwards in terms of encouraging other people. And oftentimes one member of the family might head over to scope out the situation and then say, yeah, you guys should come. And then brothers, sisters, people find other people for marriages. And so the sort of onward migration is a word of mouth situation and um yeah i think it's important to understand that this was part of divide and rule you know put people into different categories they're not competing with each other and everyone has limited power or agency and south asians for example were generally kept away from farming and that was sort of where um ugandans were placed but yeah it's an interesting question around the sort of level of authority or power anyone has in such a setup i think south asians didn't have an awful lot of power to change where they were almost but that's not to say that they wanted to they had a lot to gain from the way things were set up in uganda and so they really did participate quite actively in in equality and i think um it's it's important to recognize that fact very much so. Um, and I think that leads, well, there's some implications we might draw from that, but I'd love to make them explicit by asking you to help us understand kind of where the anger came from that led to the order in 1972. Kind of what was happening in the 1960s and the early 1970s that kind of gets us from this very strict hierarchy to suddenly you have to leave? Yeah, it's definitely something that has yeah i think that's been a sort of tendency to see a means order as a sort of bolt out of nowhere and that's does a disservice to the understanding sort of the society that came beforehand so yeah south asians had as i mentioned often tended towards the sort of business roles within society they'd become typ- typified as the shopkeepers through to plantation owners and this is a situation where very often, say, a sugar or plantation would be staffed by 
um, Ugandans, but run by South Asians. So there's this kind of visible power structure going on. And as the years pass, this would become one of the bones of contention that if, if South Asians are dominating the economy, then it leaves little space for upward mobility of the African population. Um, as Uganda gained its independence, so that's 1962, there's a you know huge, as, as is often the case, you know, feeling that this is a new start, a new country, freedom, and yet the South Asian population is still there. And they are still big business. And this is part of what's happening across the 60s is this sense that the power balance hasn't really shifted. And there's this sort of legacy of imperialism living within Uganda. And so there's a rise in sort of conversations around the Asian question. And there's an understanding that this is a question that needs answering, essentially. So... um that's kind of what's going on within Uganda, but it's also impacted by sort of broader forces as well. And outside of Uganda's borders, you know, is going to impact the situation. So um, what's happening in Britain is actually really important here as well. Britain had previously had open borders for those in the Commonwealth or former colonies um, or existing colonies. And it's sort of in the 60s that this starts to shift. There's the domestic environment in Britain is is becoming a little more hostile towards immigration. This is in the wake of the arrival of the Windrush boat. There started to be race riots. And automatic access, basically, no longer seems like a good idea to those in charge. So there's two uh, important acts that are passed, the Commonwealth Immigration Acts in 62 and 68. And... This goes hand in hand, so there's sort of like a tightening of things happening in Britain. And then meanwhile, in East Africa, both in Kenya and Uganda, there's an increasing feeling amongst the leadership, um, that's Yomo Kenyatta in Kenya and uh, Milton Obote in Uganda, of Africanization, which basically means putting more power back into African hands. So legislation on that side is starting to sort of squeeze out some of the power and the monopoly South Asians have in, in the business sphere. Um, so these two things are going hand in hand and, um, what's happening in Britain doesn't go unnoticed either. So someone like Abote is seeing that Britain is starting to say maybe they don't want to take in South Asians. And that had sort of always been an implicit understanding that there would be that option of, of migration. So, um, yeah, all of it's kind of lots of different factors coming together to sort of create a sense of growing resentment, I would say, against against the South Asian population. I think that was one of the most um, useful historical contributions of the book to kind of lay that all, all out side by side, right? It's not just what's happening in Uganda. It's not just what's happening abroad. It's like, no, no, all of these things and the Ugandan leadership are aware of the legal changes happening in Britain, right? These are not happening separately. Um, and that's, I think, a really key point for this idea of kind of bolt from the blue. It's like, well, actually, no, that there are things that are leading up to it. And in many ways, the edict is reactive to a degree. Um, yeah. And so, I think it's like, it's it's a simplification and a, to say, yeah, that Afri people in Africa aren't aware of these sort of more global mm -hmm. ge geopolitical forces. And it's, it's definitely, yeah, all of this stuff has an impact. Mm -hmm. And... 
in some ways then it's almost surprising um i mean thinking about how the british government has reacted to things more recently perhaps less so but given what you've just been telling us of kind of britain has made some pretty big changes in policy it's very much noticed by other leaders around the world um one might expect that Britain kind of is aware that these changes might have some sort of impact and therefore might have thoughts or plans about how to deal with those impacts. Um, I'm really trying to rein in the cynicism, but uh, no, that is in fact, can you tell us how Britain actually responded to the eviction order? Yeah, so um, it's basically the British government's worst nightmare when this happens. You know, they have predicted in a very kind of not hoping it won't happen way that there might be a legacy of empire and that some of the people in in countries they had colonized might actually take them up on this citizenship but uh yeah there's basically total panic in whitehall and um and just this sense that this is the start of like a domino effect where everyone in the world is going to want to come to britain and they're not going to be able to stop it so there's a feeling that this is kind of like a watershed moment when it comes to immigration policy more widely. Um, yeah, Edward Heath is is in charge. He's got his own problems going on. There's coal strikes, unemployment's at a 10-year high, and anti-immigration sentiment is also high. This is kind of Enoch Powell's era. And yeah, basically the first reaction is we've got to stop. I mean, this can't happen. Now, pretty quickly, it becomes clear that Amin isn't going to listen in the slightest to what any of the diplomats try to say to him. So then the next step is to try and uh, offshore the problem. So Britain, instead of what you might hope, which is welcoming their former citizens, well, current citizens and former colony, uh, they instead send cables all around the world to quite literally every country uh, requesting that they assist in resettling some of the population from Uganda. So um, there's the first ports of call, you know, India and Kenya, the neighbour, and they had immediately sort of recognised they would be um, targets for, for from the British government and they'd sort of close their borders to, to South Asians from Uganda. Um, but yeah, London leans on, on Commonwealth countries, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and yeah, by by the following month, they've contacted something like 50 governments. And we're talking really anywhere. We've got places as, as far removed as Nepal, Venezuela, Afghanistan. So I guess we can say that they didn't respond to the evacuation order with grace. Uh, their first priority was protecting the nation from the arrival of citizens from a former colony effectively on accounts of their skin colour. And their second priority was to desperately not set a precedent for this happening again from, from other parts of the world. And what that really culminates in is the extraordinary behaviour, which is some months later, after they had in fact started accepting Ugandan Asians into Britain, um, fearing further arrivals, especially from other neighbouring countries like Kenya and Tanzania, Britain launches a secret search for an island to send East African Asians to. And this is places like the Falklands, Seychelles, Bermuda. And yeah, we have these parallels, which are very clear with, with modern events. It, it reminds me of Nauru and Australian 
foreign policy and of course the current Rwanda plan, which is we want to put people anywhere else other than other than here. So that's definitely very poignant. And in fact, some countries said yes to this desperate plea, um, which meant that families had to make some decisions about what country to go to, what country to try for. Um, I think this is perhaps one of the parts of the book that was the most effective in blending sort of the high politics of it and the actual practical queuing and chaos of the whole thing for real people. Can you tell us about how families decided kind of where to go and what to do? Yeah, I mean, by all accounts, that first expulsion order is just not taken seriously. People find it fantastical that a whole population of tens of thousands of people have 90 days to leave a country. So in many ways, some people do nothing to begin with. And others recognise the seriousness of this and and the cogs start moving. And of course, some people have predicted this and there was already an increasing um, movement of South Asians out of East Africa in, in the years before this. Um, but yeah, I mean, people were sort of second generation, third generation living in Uganda. They, their whole lives were, were there. And so this idea of going somewhere else was unbelievable, really. And there was also a slight sort of superiority baked into this thinking. And I think it's interesting to, to recognize that, which is this idea that, you know, the country can't function without us. We're, we're the key part of the economy. And um, how would it work without, without, without South Asians? So that arrogance is there for sure. But um, once, once the reality sets in, yeah, there's this kind of pandemonium in Kampala in particular, huge queues outside embassies especially the british embassy sort of scrums to get in through the door when when someone opens it in the morning and and yeah that's that's sort of replicated at different embassies as as different countries start saying that they will take some people in so canada is one of the first countries that answers the call and so that becomes a very popular embassy to be at um Australia eventually sends um, an ambassador over and some people sort of actually just grab him in, in hotel corridors almost to try and schedule interviews. And it, yeah, it definitely becomes a situation of who you know um, to try and try and get somewhere. My conversations with people that I've spoken to for the book suggest that there wasn't a lot of tactical thinking when it comes to what country people wanted to go to. Um, it often was the based on kind of chance. So whichever had the shortest queue, whoever gave them appointments first, uh, whoever was willing to take, you know, someone and an unmarried partner, the kind of ease of where you could go uh, depended on that. I mean, most people with British citizenship were hoping and had a chance to go to the UK. But for the people that had Ugandan citizenship and were stateless now, they were really like canvassing other, other options. And, um, and yeah, later on, people who were left behind kind of from that initial movement uh, would be repatriated. Hang on, not repatriated. <laughs> later, the people who were, later, the people who were stateless uh, were removed from Uganda by the UN and went to um, camps across Europe. Um but yeah, I mean, in my family's case, they were originally thinking of going to Canada. And when that didn't work out through sort of family, friend connections, 
they they came to the UK. Uh, so yeah, there could have been a whole different direction based on just where where you queued that morning, which which I find amazing, really. Very much so. Thinking about that, um, focusing, I suppose, a little bit on the UK for my next few questions. And obviously, there is a lot I could ask about Canada or other experiences, but I, I did have to make some decisions because I can't keep you here forever. So um, could you tell us a bit about what happened once people arrived in places like the UK or Australia? Yeah, so in the UK, after this period of, of disbelief and those frantic attempts to halt the migration, uh, there was an acceptance that you know up to 50,000 people, that was the number they were kind of thinking around, w- would be coming. And so steps needed be, to be taken to accommodate such a large group of people. So toward the end of August, um, the Uganda Resettlement Board is set up. That is a collaboration between the Home Office, the Department of the Environment and the Ministry of Defence. And it really brings together kind of uh, all kinds of administrators, some sort of retired army, uh, even some ex-colonial service officers from from India, which is somewhat ironic, uh, along with a huge range of volunteers uh, to to resettle people. So it really brought together a huge range of volunteers and uh, different officers from the army and even ex-colonial service members, ironically, uh, to, to resettle people. So what that meant is uh, camps were set up in, in the UK, which is something that many people don't know. And I really didn't know much about myself until I started researching this history. And um, these were at sort of former RAF sites. And the aim was to bring people from the evacuation planes here for processing and then onwards to housing and then jobs. What was quickly discovered after the first flight, which landed um, on the 18th of September, is that this would be a, like a longer term mission than had first been imagined. So I think there was maybe a bit of a idealistic hope that they would just need to sort of give people that initial couple of days to a week and then they'd have somewhere else lined up or they would have friends or family that could house them. And those initial flights that landed really proved that to be wrong. Lots of people didn't have connections that they could rely on and they did need a lot more assistance. Not everybody spoke English, although a lot of Ugandan Asians did. There were vulnerable people who needed more support. So this grew as a mission and there ended up being 16 camps across the UK. And yeah, people were living on old RAF bases. So it's uh, not not luxurious accommodation for sure. Uh, these are sort of drafty billets, wooden cabins on stilts often. Um, communal living, like different families just separated by like sheets or curtains, bunk beds and sort of diners full of, by all accounts, bad English food. And um, yeah, it, it was quite an adjustment for people. But I think when you look at this compared with our current approach to migrants, like you have to give the board credit for welcoming people in a very structured way that was based on moving people on and getting them into employment quickly, which as citizens, they could work straight away. And that's that's very different to what we have today. Um, elsewhere, the situation is, is similar. Canada also has, has sort of a site like this where they kind of bring people in and then move them elsewhere around the country. 
And when my own family then went on to Australia a couple of years later, they stayed in a sort of migrants hostel uh, on arrival as well. So I think it's kind of shared accommodations is often the first first path for, for a lot of people. It's not the only way. If you had friends or family in the UK, for example, you might go straight to stay with them. And yeah, you hear stories about huge numbers of people bunking up in, in one little terraced house or even one house where two sort of they did two shifts a, a day and a night so people would sleep according to their different work patterns and really like make the most of every inch of space in that house. It's the um yeah, the kind of way that you have to make the most of something, the best of something as as an immigrant sometimes. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um I'd love to ask about kind of the other phase or maybe the next phase. Um, you talked about the idea of kind of making sure people were in work straight away. And to some extent, it's become a bit of a national myth, but there is a decent amount of truth behind it that a lot of people that came um, at this point were part of kind of setting up corner shops everywhere. South Asian corner shops really come into British shopping um, in a way that they hadn't really. Can you tell us about the impact um, of the South Asian corner shop, of um, the Ugandan Asian role in this change in on Britain's streets? Hmm. Yeah, no, it's definitely one of those things which you sort of need to talk about carefully because it is a bit of a stereotype, as you mentioned, and um, it, it became sort of something that people would get racially abused about as well. Um, and there, there are some some sort of slurs around the kind of way we talk about corner shops as well. And one of the anecdotes I put in the book is, you know, a, a person asking me if I'm the person that runs runs a local shop because I, I, I'm Indian and, and so is the person that runs a shop. And you know that it's 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 definitely. Uh, a complex one but it is a big part of the Ugandan Asian story and um, of course corner shops weren't weren't a new thing South Asians sort of filled a gap where Britons were maybe trying to move away from that no one longer willing to work that that shop lifestyle Um, but also when people first arrived here they saw an opportunity and that was that they saw shuttered shops on Sundays, for example, or in the evenings and thought, well, if I, I ran a shop, I could open it those hours and, and capture a whole load of business that isn't happening. And in that in that way, the South Asian corner shop really revolutionized shopping in Britain. And um, they, they were able to sort of move away from those strict opening hours. And they sort of, there was, of course, legislation which kind of restricted you, but they sort of made it possible to, to to bend those rules that there's an interesting loophole that if you sold perishable goods so that's like newspapers or, or vegetables uh, you could um, operate outside of regular trading hours and those are of course definitely things that you would buy in a corner shop so through through a little bit of ingenuity people were able to make a business through this and I think one of the things that we need to remember when we think about this is yeah, South Asians came here and were entrepreneurial and got into business, and that is a real positive. But also, there's a reason why that is a career that people chose, and many of them were qualified to do significantly different jobs back in Uganda, and this was essentially quite a major step down. There's a real 
level of racism in, in Britain at this time. And, and a lot of arrivals aren't going to be considered for the jobs that they were previously working in. So working for yourself is, yes, a, a, a way to work as much as you want and, and make the most for yourself. But also it's almost, for many people, kind of the only option or, or one of the main viable options. Uh, but yeah, I mean, by the 1980s, uh, the Daily Mail has wrote that, um, sorry, a Daily Mail report published in 1976 said that Ugandan Asians were running 4,000 grocery stores and 1,000 news agents uh, just two years after their arrival. So yeah, it's a huge shift on the high street and um, yeah, one that's got, got a real legacy to this day, I think. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to pick up on something you mentioned a little bit earlier, kind of now that we've gotten to that part chronologically, I suppose. Um, I think even amongst people who might know a bit about kind of the order in 1972, the later action um, in Uganda is probably even less well known when the new president, the post-Idi Amin leader of Uganda, called for Ugandan Asians to return um why and what was it like for the people who did yeah so it's a really sort of interesting circular approach here that yeah all these years after the expulsion a later leader would say please come back and you couldn't have predicted that back in 72 when when people were sort of packing up their single suitcases and, and leaving everything behind that that there would really be a future to go back and yeah, so Museveni is is Ugandan president to this day. He's one of those incredibly long running statesmen and has has a real iron grip on on the country. And um, yeah, since the late eighties, he he's been in charge. And fairly soon after he took power, he did say, to, "You know, South Asians, you you can come back. We we would like you to come back and participate in this country again." Well, the the reasoning for that is is something beyond my my knowledge for sure but i think uh part of it is is basically just just tactics for for business i mean south asians had been a big part of uganda's economy then and Museveni could recognize that they they could be like that again and i think when you look at the population that's there now yeah it's it's definitely still got that sort of business flavor to it people are there Built, some people are building lives, but other people are sort of transient workers who come and go from from India, and that's a whole new generation of people who have nothing to do with the original Ugandan Asians. Um, but yeah, I, I travelled to Kampala and, and met with a range of people who have moved back, and it's it's a fascinating um, story that that everyone has, and uh, a lot of people spoke of fear on returning because you know they had left under such traumatic circumstances and yet yeah, the sort of years since the expulsion had been challenging there was a range of leaders there was a range of uh, devastation for the country the economy wasn't in a great shape and so people were coming into a place that needed workers to rebuild almost and um, when people were tracking down their properties they some people have told me, you know, they they would find multiple people living in what had been previously one house, and um, even recognise items of furniture that they'd left behind decades before that were still there and still being used. And 
Yeah, basically what had happened is when, when Amin expelled the Ugandan Asians, he had the state had taken over property um, and this was then passed on to uh, something known as the Departed Asian Property Custodial Board and divided up. Now, essentially, this is divided amongst Amin's cronies. The vast majority go to people that are favoured by the government or come from the sort of region of Uganda that Amin was from. And um, getting them back is is by no means a simple process. There's obviously a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, it also depends who's who's living in it because the nature of claiming a property back means that you are going to be pushing someone out of that house who's living there. So, yeah, it's t- those people who have returned, it's taken a long time to to resettle. Uh, but yeah, now you do have this this multicultural population back in Uganda again, and um, yeah, we'll have to see how that plays out over the years that come. I think very much so. I'm wondering now that we've sort of covered the chronology of the book, if I can ask you a little bit about the behind the scenes of it, almost, or kind of about something that's been a part of the answers, but we haven't talked about directly, which is the strange sort of time of this, the generation of this, right? In a lot of ways, this is well within living memory, but also in some ways not within generational memory, right? Like a lot has changed since the 1970s. A lot is different now between people who are um, young today, who are young adults today, and people who were young and young adults in 1972. We talk about those generational gaps sort of all the time. Um, And yet to do this research, to put this book together, looking at the range that you do, you had to kind of keep going back and forth across um, different ages, different experiences. What did you find um, amongst the people you talked to across generations, between generations, when you were asking them about these experiences and the longer term impacts? Yeah, it was really important to me to cover that kind of um, range of ages. I didn't want to just speak to people who had lived through the expulsion. I did also want to talk to people like myself, who are the the next generations on, and how how that experience has has shaped them as well. And yeah, like you say, this is it's easy to think of this when you look at some black and white imagery as as happening a long time ago. But this is yeah, fifty one years ago. It's not out of living memory by any stretch of the imagination. So I spoke to, you know, different members of the same family. I spoke to younger people, older people. And it was really interesting having those conversations because you definitely see different parts of the story through different eyes. I think one of the things that I noticed is the kind of the 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 people that have lived through the expulsion, there's a sort of typical trajectory that they like to say and it's very much upwards moving this is less critical and it is um kind of focusing on on the the successes that have happened in the years that have passed now the success story is something that has really become tied to Ugandan Asians like no other it's something that politicians like David Cameron Boris Johnson have have said and this is really saying that Ugandan Asians came here, became financially successful and contributed greatly to the economy. And it's something I've always felt uncomfortable with because the idea of success to me means that you're naturally kind of comparing that to someone else. And if we're talking about some migrants being successful, then 
we're saying others aren't, others don't contribute as much. And others may not have the means to, you know, Ugandan Asians came here in this unique circumstance. They were set up for success in many ways, having already come from a country that uh, was very British, having this right to work straight away, many speaking English, having the resettlement board. And so, yeah, but I found that older generations often felt like that was a deserved way to talk about this migration. You know, they they had really lived through it. They had put up with the, the tough times and to be praised for sort of surviving that experience is feels good. Then when I spoke to some younger people, it was a case that they were more willing to look past that kind of uh, nice migrant loop of things were difficult and now we've kind of made the best of it. And I think what it made me realise is it's almost down to the next generation to approach this history more critically. So the different voices give very different perspectives on this history, but I completely appreciate and understand why and that's why it's important to include them all in the book um so thank you for kind of taking us through the chronology helping us understand some of the complexities busting some myths <laughs> um and uh, i think we've covered a lot of really of the important points and themes of the book obviously the book itself has loads more detail and stories so for anyone who wants um the specifics of a particular experience of jumping and thinking about the cues for example i mean that really the book has a lot of rich detail um but the book is, in fact, available for people, which means that all that rich detail is off of your desk. Is there anything you might be working on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this subject that you'd like to preview for us? Yeah, so I think there's a few things that I explored in the book that I want to look at a little bit more. Um, some of that is around sort of indenture and the movement of Indians globally. There's just so much rich storytelling within that to, to look at. And um, sort of adjacent to that is exploring sort of borders and the way in which they control lives in ways that we don't necessarily think about every day. Um, and then, yeah, other than that, I'm just sort of focusing on some journalism um, around the legacy of conflict and generational trauma. So, yeah, these these things are already linked and they're definitely all linked to the book. And, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, just continuing to, to dig into um, underrepresented histories because, uh, yeah, there's there's just so much still to, to explore. Very much so. Well, well, we'll see what comes from that. It'll be very exciting, I'm sure, to watch. And of course, in the meantime, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, titled The Exiled Empire Immigration and the Ugandan Asian Exodus, um, just published. Lucy, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.